All right. Um, so John 14. I think we should go ahead and read this section by section. I think that would make more sense. Uh, so, uh, Peter, would you read verses 1 to 7? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I'm, I'm struggling between a choice, <clears throat> two choices. To go back into what's happening in Jesus' life at this moment. And to jump forward to what is happening in our lives right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I should choose between those, do you? Maybe we should do both and. Do not let your hearts be troubled. How easy is that? But how simple. Yeah, don't simple. worry. And children are that way. You know, you tell them not to worry, and they don't worry. It's not until something really bad happens, usually, that a child starts worrying. Uh, I think when I started worrying, I was all of 14, 13, 14, and we had just moved from Oregon to Arizona. And we were living in Scottsdale at Thunderbird Academy campus. Thunderbird Academy was still out in the desert at that time. It's no longer that way. And we were living in campus housing, and so we were kind of cozy, and it was, it was nice. But we weren't used to Arizona. Phoenix is sprawled, and there are, there are just whole places where you have little bits of desert in, in the middle of the city. And to get anywhere takes, out, takes time, in my, I mean, just a lot of time. And so my dad would make his weekly track to town to buy music because he was a music teacher at Thunderbird. And he wouldn't get home, and he wouldn't get home, and he wouldn't get home. And, my, and then the sirens from the nearby fire department would start blaring. <laughs> and then we'd hear ambulances. We always hear, were hearing sirens on North Scottsdale Road that <laughs> ran past the campus. And um, that's when I started worrying. I wasn't used to that. I lived in the country before. We never heard a siren. Never. Um, but, but normally children just trust that everything's going to be okay. They trust their parents. They trust um, people around them. Now, the more current generations, the, the younger generations, aren't so trusting because they've been pounded, had pounded into them the fear of strangers, the fear of this, the fear of that. Uh, and safety has become an enormous preoccupation. So much so that you see uh, postings on Facebook of the good old days when we didn't have these fears. And we, we went out and we did risky things and we got away with it. <laughs> you know, we lived through that. 
Uh, so why are we so safety conscious now? And, and so those things. Uh, Jesus seems to live in a real world with real dangers. I mean, here he is on his way to the cross. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But if you go to Matthew, and just a few, maybe an hour, Jesus says, my heart is severely troubled, even to death. So, Jesus isn't saying, shame on you, because your hearts are troubled. Is he? It's more, you really don't need to be troubled. And yet, we know that we are. So, what's his solution to our trouble? Believe in God. You know, the word for believe, or believe, is also the word to trust. Believing isn't possible, really, unless we trust. So trust in God. Trust also in me. Um, some translators translate this, if you trust in God, you will trust in me. And why are we to trust Him? Kim? Because of who He is. Because of who He is? Yeah, in all of that, Creator, our Defender, He has our best interests at heart. He loves us. He, how many promises can we claim? Mm -hmm. But what does He say specifically? Gets us through these troubles. That's all. That's true, Kim. But there's something specific here. He says, "I am the way and the truth and." The life. Okay, you're jumping over the, specific, the the concrete aspect. He prepared a place for us. In my Father's house are many rooms. And, and to Adventists who have been waiting for the soon return for how many aeons, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem real. And it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem the solution. We want something now. That isn't happening now. Jesus isn't up there in the clouds. So how can knowing that in my Father's house are many rooms take away our troubles, alleviate our troubles? Well, maybe let's ask this question, and I think this will help us. What trouble is Jesus talking about here in terms of the disciples? Well, first, right before this, He's telling Peter that Peter's going to deny him. There's going to be real trouble for him. Yeah. And Peter's going to deny him because he's so scared. Mm -hmm. You can imagine that Peter's face went very long. Sorry. <laughs> and not just deny him, but three times deny him. Yeah. Peter's face must have gone very long. Jesus, you don't trust me. You don't believe in me. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. What trouble does Jesus' words there address? They're about to be eaten. Everyone keeps asking, where are you going? He's going to be leaving them, and they get that. 
So Jesus is saying, "I'm leaving. Yes, I'm leaving you, but I'm. This is not the end of the story. The final story is you're going to have a home with me in my father's house, and he has many rooms. There's room enough for you." Jesus could have said this so differently, couldn't he? Have? He said, "My father lives." Uh, he could have said. Uh, I'm the coming king. I'm going to take you to my palace. What kind of uh, impression would that give us? It's so against everything that he's done. <laughs> it's so against everything he's done. <laughs> True. But it would give them that immediate sense of security, in a sense. It would. Yes. It would tie into their false beliefs. Yeah. That's true. But it would also promote this remote view of God that the Babylonians handed down to us. That God is like an earthly king mm -hmm. who sits on a throne at a distance and we can't be near him. So, you know, yeah, we take him to our pa his palace, but the rooms will be off somewhere else. We're not in our father's house. Mm -hmm. So, Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? He just talked about his father's house. <laughs> Thomas is like, no, really, tell us where you're going. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. That's about it. <laughs> so Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's like, duh. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, as soon as they ask for something concrete, he keep gives them something better. Keep in mind that everything's very, yeah, very concrete. Uh, that's the Hebrew language, that's the Hebrew culture, the literalist. A way of interpretation. It's interesting in the Geneva, verse 6 says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, capital W, and that truth, capital T, and that life, capital L. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What does it mean that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Remember what the name of the early Christian church was? Wasn't it the way? Yes, it was the way. And, and it's nice to think, okay, he, um, that's a, a very carefully non-politically nuanced word. You know, it's not going to get you in trouble. But they meant something specific by the way. They meant Jesus. Well, Jesus is the only way that we can get the perfect picture of the Father. He's the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, the life of the Father. Remember, the light is the life of men. So these are all really the same expressions, just different ways of looking at it. So let's move on to um, verses 8 to 14. You want to read? <clears throat> Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, the Father may be glorified, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We've been talking about this for a long time, haven't we? How if we've seen the Jesus, we've seen the Father. That comes up, I think, about once a month here. If we really believe that, what difference would it make? If we really grasped it in its fullness and entirety, what difference would it make? If we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. It changes everything. It changes the whole entire understanding of the Old Testament, especially for the disciples' time. If they understood that Jesus is the Father, and the Father is Jesus, and they... They'd have to go back and try to reinterpret the Old Testament, yeah. wouldn't they? I, I, think, I really honestly believe that the disciples could not fully grasp this. In fact, there's some evidence for that. If you look at John 16, uh, Jesus says in verse 26, On that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, Yes. Now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Not that you are God. You came from God. Jesus got them so far. And in this thing that you do not need to have anyone question you. Right, no more questions, God. We've, we've gotten all our questions answered, so no more questions. And, and Jesus must have been saying, oh, please ask more questions. <laughs> and then if you go to Jesus' prayer, verse 6, John 17. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words I, you gave me, I have given to them, and they have received them and know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus doesn't carry it. They know that you are just like me. So, should we think that we have it all now? If the disciples didn't have it all then, should we think that we have it all now? Far from it. Anything else in this passage that you that particularly strikes you? Why does he, in the middle of saying this, say, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it? And then he goes in right into something else. I mean, verse 13 and 14 are linked, but... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just well, inserted in there. It kind of... What kind of relates to verse 12? He's kind of transitioning to something else. At first he's saying that the Father and I are one. And then later he he transitions to like almost applying it to them that 
if you if you believe in me, you will do greater works than what I was doing. If you ask in my character, I will you I will do it. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, he's trying to bridge their gap in their thinking. That that you have to find some intermediary way to the Father. And Jesus says, I am that way. Okay? He's meeting them where they are. He tries to take them from this point all the way to, I don't have to ask the Father for you, because the Father loves you himself. But he's not there yet. So he's building this bridge. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it, that the Father might be glorified in the Son, so that you might know that the Father loves you as the Son. That's where he's headed. That's what's behind this, it seems to me. Anything else? Yes, Kim? So, this, the bridge is that, I know you said that he was trying to build that, that bridge, but is that not also what it's going to be? completed, if not already, um, when we stand without an intercessor? Well, that, that brings that. She says uh, he, he's creating this bridge, but isn't that bridge supposed to be completed by the time that we stand without an intercessor? Is that, did I give that I, right? Kind of. You know, he, it's partially built now, like he was building it, but is it an ongoing thing? What does it mean to stand without an intercessor when we don't need to ask the Father for anything because the Father loves us himself? What does it mean to stand without an intercessor? There's a lot of fear in Adventism about this. I mean, because that kind of leads to like the, the, the courtroom um, sort of idea of, of judgment where Jesus is our defender and he's pleading to the judge being the Father. Yeah, but does he pl- have to plead with the Father? That's the no, question. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who? What? What is happening in that courtroom that he, Jesus has to say anything? The the idea behind it is that we are fallen, we are sinful, and that there is no way for us to be. And the Father is holy. Jesus isn't holy and doesn't have that problem. That scenario kind of doesn't make sense in in this what Jesus is talking about because they're in each other yeah. and they know we are one. They're the same. They're, that oneness is not going to be separated. Let's go to Zechariah three. I think we've been here before, but we'll read you again. Selena, why don't you read verses one to five? And he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he stood and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Who's this angel of the Lord? Um, 
the passage is Zechariah 3, 1 through 5? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, want, I couldn't hear what she was reading. Lord is capitalized. Everything. So. Yeah, Lord is Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you. Why would Yahweh say Yahweh rebuke you? Does this shed any light in this courtroom? This is not, this is a cosmological court in which empirical evidence, not forensic evidence, has the ultimate word. Now, there is forensic evidence, there, is, there are witnesses in this court. In fact, Jesus is the chief witness because he witnesses and testifies of the Father. But it, but the the dynamics of this court and what it's rooted in are very different. Remember that Satan in, in Revelation is considered the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before God. Yeah. And he is the one who has deceived the whole world. If you ever feel berated over something you have done, it's not the Holy Spirit talking to you. He accuses us to try to to take our hold off of God to get us to distrust Him and start worrying about our own performance. Instead of taking it to calmly to God and saying, please take care of this problem I have. And resting it with Him. And focusing on Him. This is a very real battle. The, the battleground, the courtroom is in our minds as well as in the heavenly, before the heavenly universe. And so, Jesus is up there to offset and counter Satan's charges against us. He's not up there pleading with the Father. The Father and He are on our side. Uh, John, 8, I mean Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? So, when, I'm forgetting the big original verse that we were talking about. We were talking about the intercessors, so like... Oh, the, uh, yeah. The, the idea of intercessor. Mm -hmm. and, and standing before God without an intercessor. Mm -hmm. What does that mean now that we know that Satan is the accuser? Our time is rapidly coming yeah. to a close. And I'm tempted to make you stay with this question <laughs> for the next week. <laughs> Well, I feel like the idea of intercessor changes to more just defender and God and, and the uh, the Father and Jesus are just are defenders. Let's, let's, take, let's take the word, it's a synonym, mediator. Mm -hmm. When a mediator takes place, they identify what one side is saying and they identify what the other side is saying and they attempt to help both sides see the other side. Isn't that what mediation does? Yeah. So, if that's what mediation does, the process of this whole thing is to identify to us Satan's lies. This is, this is the message that Satan is giving you in your brain. Remember, the courtroom isn't just in heaven, it's in our heads. Mm -hmm. So, the mediation process is to help us understand and, and, and get a grip on what Satan has lied to us about and to help us understand God in his ways and the truth about God. That's the battle. That's the courtroom. 
once we have that intercession done, it means that God has done everything he can to convince every single one of us on this planet of who he is and of who Satan is. It is done. There's nothing more he can do. We stand without that mediation any longer. We either are settled into the truth or we're settled into Satan's lies at that point. And it's at that point, Ellen White suggests, that Satan comes as Christ in his last masterful delusion. And the question is, here we are. God is no longer shedding light in our minds. He's no longer doing that mediatorial process of helping us discern. Will we, will we fall flat? Or will we get through this? Does that make sense at all? It's very interesting. See, if, if, we, if we keep the Father there in the place of Satan, as the one who's accusing us, and has to be persuaded to forgive us, we can't see that at all. Our time is up. Father, we thank you that you have invited us to come boldly to you in the throne of grace. That your throne is grace. And not anger. And not rejection. And not accusation. And that the only accuser of the brethren is not you. But it's Satan. We thank you that he has been shown to be false in his accusations about you. And therefore... If we trust in you, we claim your righteousness in the person of your Son. He has nothing in us. We thank you for this. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.